Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. I was doing some catechism questions yesterday with with Kim, and we normally do catechism for the first twenty or so minutes, and then we play football or soccer or something, work first then play, and we finished the catechism and we started playing a little bit, but towards the end, uh, Kim sat down and said, "I want more God." We wanted more God. May we want more, may we want more God. Matthew 20 verses 17 through 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And He will be raised on the third day. O Father, out of the mouths of babes You've ordained praise. Father, we know the most important thing we need is more God. We need more of You. Less of ourselves. Less of the world. Less play. Less sin. Less fear. Less worry. Less anxiety. We need more God. And so God, we we pray now You would give us more God. More of You. Lord Jesus, Your Word tells us that You came and suffered to bring us to God. And so we pray, Lord, that as we meditate briefly on these words today, that You would give us more God. That we would be filled with all the fullness of God. That we would know the height and width and length and depth of the love of Jesus that surpasses knowledge and be filled with the fullness of God as Paul prayed for the Ephesians. And so God, grant us that today. Lord, for those who are hopeless, we pray that would give them hope. For those who are sad, Lord, we pray You, God, would make them happy in You. Father, for those who are despairing and depressed, we pray that You would be the anchor of their soul. Father, for those who may be here this morning who are not born again, we pray that today would be their birthday. That today they would be born again and saved forever. And Father, for those who are already here, happy in You, praising You, delighting in You, we pray that it would just be more fuel to the fire. And we would all together have more of You today. 
And so give us Yourself, Father. We pray that You would remove any obstacle from from giving uh, us more of Yourself. Keep us from distraction. Keep us from uh, minds wandering. We pray, God, that You would do everything we need to give us more of You this morning. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Last week we studied the parable of the amazing grace of the uh, master or the ruler of the house which began with Matthew 19.30 but many who are first will be last and the last first and then we have that four statement. Four and then he tells the parable to illustrate uh, the proverb but many who are first will be last and the last first And he tells the parable which we saw people begin working in the morning and people get hired throughout the day and then some people get hired at the very end of the day with only one hour to go and yet the master of the house pays everybody the same amount. And then it ends in Matthew 20.16 so the last will be first and the first will be last. The last will be first and the first last. And I shared with you the insights of one pastor who said, how is the first, last, and the last first in a race? Well, if they all finish at the same time. When they all finish at the same time, the first is last and the last first, and that's exactly what happened to the people in the parable. They all receive the same reward. They all finish at the same time, so to speak. And so we saw from that last week that in the kingdom of heaven, there will be no sinful comparisons or works righteousness legalism. There will be no comparisons because heaven is a world of love and we love each other and we delight in each other's successes and we mourn with each other's losses and we don't compare because comparing is sinful. Thou shalt not covet. And there will be no works righteousness legalism. If if we're God's, it's by grace and grace alone. His lavish grace. It's a free gift of God. We spoke about that this morning in this a membership class that even repentance is a gift from God. God may grant them repentance. Even faith in Christ is a gift from God. Uh, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is a gift of God, not of works as any man should boast. We saw that God always does what's right, especially when we don't like what's going on in our lives. God always does what's right even when we don't like our circumstances. God always does what's right. God is absolutely sovereign and free to give grace to whom He pleases. We learned last week. He will have mercy on whom He will have mercy and will harden whom He hardens. And He knows best. We saw last week that God is extremely generous so that we should be thankful and amazed by grace. He is the God of grace. It's the parable of the amazing grace of the Master. He's lavish in grace. And we thought about how some people don't like that. (laughs) Usually the people who are legalists and self-righteous Pharisees, they don't like the lavish grace of God that everybody got the same. No matter how long or hard they worked. And all the children, all God's children, finally we learn that all God's children are fundamentally equal in His sight. That all of us, whether we're the thief on the cross or the Apostle Paul, have so much in common with what we'll receive in salvation. We are righteous. We have the righteousness of Christ. We are adopted into God's family. We're the children of God. We're loved by God with an everlasting love. Every tear will be wiped away. We will have pleasures forevermore in the presence of God. 
and joy unspeakable. So we thought about all of that last week. Today, we see Jesus focus His disciples' hearts and minds on the first and primary reality that will make all of this amazing grace that we receive possible. The deliverance, the sufferings, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. So all the wonderful grace and love and mercy and what we celebrated in last week's sermon, what what makes all of that possible? What happened on a weekend 2,000 years ago. And this is the center of the Christian faith. What we're going to think about today is the center of the Christian faith. There's nothing more important than this. Paul said this is what is of first importance. Paul, when he came to the Corinthian church, said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul said, I forbid it, God, that I should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the center. And so let's look at these verses this morning. Point number one, Jesus is going up to Jerusalem to die. Look at verses 17 and 18 again. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. In two verses, Jerusalem is mentioned twice. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem and He tells His disciples, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And that made me wonder, what is the significance of Jesus dying in Jerusalem? And so I want to give you a brief little biblical theology of Jerusalem. This is the city where God put His name forever. 2 Kings 21.7 In this house and in Jerusalem which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put My name forever. Forever. He set His name on Jerusalem. This is the city where God dwells forever. 1 Chronicles 23-25 For David said, The Lord, the God of Israel, has given rest to His people, and He dwells in Jerusalem forever. Jerusalem is sometimes used as a representative term to describe God's people, God's kingdom. And so if you remember that beautiful picture of of God calling His people out to be His own in Ezekiel 16, where He calls them out from paganism and idolatry and washes them, makes them clean, gives them splendor and beauty, which is His beauty. Ezekiel 16, 2-3, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, thus says the Lord God, to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And he goes on about how he called Jerusalem out to be his own. His people. Revelation 21.2, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's where all this is headed. The new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, the people of God. God made Jerusalem to be the perfection of beauty and the joy of all the earth. Lamentations 2.15 said of Jerusalem, Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty and the joy of all the earth? 
Psalm 137.6, if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, whew, set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Song of Solomon 6.4, when the poet is grasping for language to, to, to describe the beauty of his lover, where does he go? Jerusalem. Song of Solomon 6.4, you are beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem. God set Jerusalem at the center of the earth. Ezekiel 5.5, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. Jerusalem is the city of the great King. Jesus, quoting Psalm 48, says in the Sermon on the Mount, Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. God ordained Jerusalem to be where His temple would be built which is His dwelling place and where sacrifices were offered. Second Chronicles 11.16 Those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord, God of Israel, came after Him from all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord, the God of their fathers. And yet God punished Jerusalem. God punished Jerusalem for her sins. 1 Chronicles 6.15, Jehozadak went into exile when the Lord sent Judah and Jerusalem into exile by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. 2 Chronicles 29.8, Therefore the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem, and he, was made, he made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. I hope you're seeing where I'm going to go with this. I hope your mind's on Jesus. God's beloved one, the one who is our highest joy, the beauty of all beauties, the delight of all delights, and then she bears the wrath of God, but God also promises He will restore Jerusalem. He will raise her up. God promised to restore and redeem Jerusalem. Luke 2.38 speaks of the prophetess Anna coming up to that very hour. She, Anna, began to give God thanks and speak of Him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And we see that throughout the prophets. That God is going to redeem Jerusalem. Joel 3.20 But Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. Jerusalem will be inhabited forever to all generations. Zechariah 1.16-17 Therefore thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Zion is another way to speak of Jerusalem. Zechariah 8, 7-8, through 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Zechariah 12.10 And I will pour out on the house of David and inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so, then, so that when they look on me, on Him whom they pierced, they shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over Him as one weeps over a firstborn. Zechariah 13.1 On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Beloved Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of these promises. 
I'm not talking about a piece of land. I'm talking about a God in heaven. I'm talking about the whole world. I'm not talking about y'all taking a trip to Jerusalem, the, the, the physical city on earth. I'm talking about Jesus. I'm talking about the people of God Almighty. Let's learn to read the Bible rightly. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these promises. Luke 18.31, taking the twelve, He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Everything, everything, everything means everything. Jesus is the new and better Jerusalem. Jesus bears God's name forever. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the very presence of God forever because He is God. Jesus is our heavenly husband and we are His bride, one flesh with Him. So He totally identifies with us, His people. Think of Paul's conversion. Why are you persecuting me? He was persecuting the church. Because the church is the new Jerusalem, the people of God. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the temple we love and worship. And you are the temple of God. Jesus is the perfection of beauty and the joy of all the earth. Jesus is our highest joy. Jesus Christ and His finished work is the center of everything in our lives and faith. And He died in the center of the nations where He came to ransom a people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Jesus is the great center of all the earth. Jesus is the great King, the King of kings. Jesus is the final and only fully effective sacrifice for sins. Jesus is the temple who was destroyed for our sins and exiled for our sins. But in three days, He was restored and He rose up from the dead. Jerusalem means the city or foundation of peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. They're going up there so that all will be accomplished in Jerusalem. And because of Jesus' finished work, we come now, even now, today, right now, in the gathering of God's people. Oh, may we grow in our understanding of the importance and the centrality of the gathering of God's people right now. There's nothing more important. Children, when, you, when you're choosing a college, make sure you find a good church first. Don't go to a college if they don't have a good church for you to go to. That should be your priority. Nothing else. Because of Jesus' finished work, we come to a heavenly Jerusalem to worship. And we are, in fact, the new Jerusalem in Christ. These Hebrew Israelites start talking about Jewish stuff. I am a Jew. I'm in union with the Lion of the tribe of Judah. I am the new Jerusalem, baby. They don't even know. They don't even know. Because of Jesus' finished work, we come to the heavenly Jerusalem to worship and we are the new Jerusalem in Christ. Hebrews 12, 22-24 But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And in Revelation 21, we read, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. How are all those prophecies fulfilled that Jerusalem will be inhabited forever? Because of the new Jerusalem. That we are the bride of Christ will dwell with God forever. This is amazing. The Bible is amazing. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. O. Palmer Robertson writes, This land, this land of Israel, this land, the city Jerusalem, was made for Jesus Christ. All its diversity was designed to serve Him. Its character as a land bridge for three continents. Jesus died in the midst of the earth, in the heart of the earth, in the center of the nations. Europe, Africa, Asia, all there. This land bridge for three continents was crafted at creation for His strategic role in history of humanity. Even today, all nations flow constantly to this place for it is uniquely His land, the focal point of the world. This is where Jesus went up to die. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And beloved, hear this. Because this is our end. Our end is to be in Jerusalem forever. Where this is said in Isaiah 35.10 of Zion, another way to... Jerusalem, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. All the best days of our lives are always in the future. I don't know what you came here with this morning, what pains, what sufferings, what losses, what sadnesses, what depression, but that's going to happen. In Jerusalem someday. For everybody who's in Christ Jesus. Trust Him. Trust Him. And Jesus made it all happen by what He did in Jerusalem. That's point number one. Point number two, Jesus told His disciples this news privately. Jesus told His disciples this news privately. Look again at verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside. D.A. Carson comments, only the twelve were remotely ready for this passion prophecy. Let, let me, Anthony, when you, when you get your PhD and you start writing commentaries, do me a favor. When it talks about Jesus telling stuff's going to happen before it happened, don't use the word prediction. Use the word prophecy. I got so fed up with all these commentaries. These guys I love. They love Jesus. They're good guys. They, they're filled with the Spirit. But they kept saying prediction. His prediction. His prediction. His prediction. And I'm getting all mad. This ain't no weatherman. He ain't no weatherman predicting this. He's telling you what's going to happen. And then I said, well, maybe I'm the one that's wrong. So I actually looked up prediction. Oh, yeah, well, it can be used that way. But what it sounds like, I don't like the, that, that, that may be the, what is it, the connotation and denotation, all that stuff. It, it sounds like a weatherman. He's predicting what's going to happen. No, 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 no. He's telling you what's going to happen. So I changed every word when I'm quoting it to prophecy. He prophesied this. He's telling you what's going to happen. He ain't predicting nothing. He ain't no weatherman. Only the twelve were remotely ready for this passion prophecy. And yet, beloved, does it astonish you that they don't get it? 
They, they don't get it. They, they, he told them this two or three times before. He, he's told them that He's going to die and rise again. And yet they don't get it. And, and <laughs> I, I try to put myself in their shoes thinking, oh yeah, all right. Because the resurrection's in there. Yes, He's going to die. Yes, that's bad. Yes, that might cause me to wonder. But He ends with, and be raised from the dead. And so I'm thinking the disciples, wouldn't they just be, I can't wait to see all this go down. I can't wait to see how Jesus is going to do this. He's going to die. All this bad stuff is going to happen. That's bad. But the end says, and rise from the dead. But they don't get it. They don't get it. And the way they respond later in the Gospels when he does die shows you they don't get it. Beloved, be reminded, we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. We, we can't get it. We can read. We might understand English and grammar. But unless the Spirit shows us, we're not going to get stuff. You're not going to get it. And so we need the Spirit of God. This is why we pray before we read the Bible. Why we pray before I preach. Why we pray after I preach. Lord, help us get what we need to get. Because God has to do it. And Jesus knows when to say what. Jesus knows when to say what and to, who, who to say it to and how to say it. John 16, 12, He said, I have many things to say to you, disciples, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus knows best. He tells us in the best way. He tells us at the right time. And so we need to trust Him. We need to trust Him. We need to imitate Him. And also realize there are certain things people need to be told in the right way at the right time. And so Jesus pulls His disciples aside and He, he, he knows they're the only ones ready to hear this. And He tells them again what's going to happen to Him. Point three, Jesus would be delivered over to be killed. Look at verses 18 and 19 again. See, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. Now I want to ask the question, who delivered Jesus over? Who delivered Jesus over to be killed? Well, Judas delivered Jesus over and the chief priests and scribes delivered Jesus over. Right? Judas betrayed Jesus. A great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people, uh, Matthew 26, 47, came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then the chief priests and scribes unjustly delivered Jesus over to the Romans, the Gentiles, who then unjustly put Him to death. And so all of these groups delivered Jesus over. But... In all of this sinful delivering over of Jesus by sinful men, God delivered Jesus over to accomplish His perfect purposes. You see that? Are Scriptures coming to your mind that would, 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 would prove that? Maybe one of the most famous verses in the Bible come to your mind that proves that? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. This is what Acts 2 and Acts 4 tell us. Acts 2, 22-24. Men of Israel, 
Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Did you catch that? Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Acts 4, 26-28, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and the Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God predestined this to take place. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him up for us all. How shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Beloved, God ruled and reigned over the greatest evil in the universe. And what they meant for evil, God meant for the greatest good. What they meant as the greatest evil ever committed by humanity, God meant for the greatest good in the universe. Beloved, do you believe that God can do the same thing in your life? That God can do the same thing in your life? Turn what you mean for evil and others mean for evil against you and mean it for good. That's Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And so... Yes, these wicked men delivered Jesus over. Yes, but ultimately God delivered Jesus over. Beloved, did you even know Jesus delivered Himself over? Jesus delivered Himself over to be crucified for you because He loves you. Jesus delivered Himself over to be crucified because He loves you. Galatians 2.20 Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Jesus gave Himself for me. Jesus gave Himself up because He loved me, Paul said. It's very personal. Beloved, do you, can you say that? That God loves me? Jesus loves me? Jesus loves me. We just need to go back to children's songs. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus delivered Himself to be crucified because He loves you. And then in another and final sense, we all delivered Jesus up to be crucified. Because of our sin. Romans 4.25 Who was delivered up for our trespasses. In another sense, we delivered Him up. We killed Jesus. Because it was our sin that put Him there. Martin Luther said, we all carry His nails in our pockets. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're a not a believer, did you realize that? Did you realize that you are responsible for the death of Jesus because of your sin? The Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've gone our own way. We've done our own thing. We've delighted in the things of this world more than in God. We've, we've not wanted more of God. We've wanted to play games all our lives. 
And we sin against Him. We sin against Him sexually. Sex outside of marriage, fornication. We sin by adultery. We sin by looking with lust, which Jesus says is adultery. We sin in violence and murder and hatred. We sin by lying and cheating and stealing. We sin in manifold ways because we are fundamentally at heart sinners in our fallen condition. And God hates sinners. And He'll punish sinners in hell forever because of their sin. But He also loves sinners. He loves sinners. And so He did something to save us from our sins. He sent His Son, Jesus. He sent Jerusalem. He sent the fulfillment of Jerusalem, Jesus Christ, into the world, the temple. He sent the temple of the living God, Jesus Christ. He sent the new and better Israel, Jesus Christ, into the world to live a perfect life. Where Adam, He he sent the new and better Adam. And where Adam failed, Jesus obeyed. Where Israel failed, Jesus obeyed. Where we've sinned, Jesus obeyed. And He died on that cross which we're going to talk about more, and suffered God's wrath, and He was buried on the third day. He rose from the dead, conquering sin, death, and hell, so that anyone who turns from their sins, repents, and believes in Jesus Christ will be justified before God and righteous and forgiven and will enter the new Jerusalem someday and be the new Jerusalem someday. Friends, that's the Gospel. And we want you to believe that. We don't want you to leave here until you believe that. So if you want to talk to me afterwards, there are other Christians here who would love to speak with you. But we want you to trust in Christ today. Because you don't know if you'll have another day to do so. You do not know if tonight the Lord will require your soul of you. And so today is the day of salvation. This is the good news of the Gospel. And we see the heart of this Gospel in our text today. And so let's move on. Jesus, point four, would be condemned by men. Look at verse 18. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn Him to death. Jesus was and is the perfect sinless man. And yet He was falsely accused and lied about and wrongly condemned by these wicked men who ought to know better, the leaders, the chief priests and scribes, the leaders, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They lie about Him, they falsely accuse Him, and they're bloodthirsty for Him. They want God dead. They want God dead. And and there's there's no, no, no difference today. If Jesus came today, they would kill Him too. Because if you look around in our culture, the world wants God dead. They want to kill God. They hate God. That's what wicked men do. That's what wicked governments do. They hate God. They want to kill God. And we see it happen today. Here in Jesus' day. The perfect, sinless, holy, loving, kind, perfect man is falsely accused, lied about, and wrongly condemned. Proverbs 17.15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. And that's what they did. They condemned the righteous. And that's an abomination to the Lord. And yet what they mean for evil, God means for good. 
Notice point five, Jesus would be tortured by men. Look at verse 19. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. They laughed at him. They, they mocked him as a king, put a crown of thorns on him and laughed. Oh, you're a king. Put this purple robe on him and laughed at him as the, the king of the Jews. They flogged him. They spit on him. They beat him. Flogging. They, they would, they would beat you with straps that would, the beatings would be so bad sometimes that your bones would stick out of your body. The flesh would all be taken away. Jesus suffered horrific physical suffering. The Bible even says it was so bad you could not tell he was a human being. He was beaten so badly he looked like a piece of hamburger meat. That's my translation of Isaiah 52, 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. They beat our Lord. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Tremble, tremble. But that's what they did to our King. The most humble, beautiful, loving, kind, gentle, perfect man who ever lived. They treated Him like that. For you. Because He loves you. And the text says Jesus was crucified. Point number six, Jesus would be crucified. Verse 19, and they crucified and be crucified. Because the physical suffering wasn't the main suffering. Crucifixion was brutal. A brutally physical, uh, physically painful way to die. It could take days suffering. But the Romans made it that way because they liked cruel, unusual punishment. They were aiming for cruel and unusual punishment. They wanted to prolong the death. They wanted it to be torturous and painful. And Jesus endured that physical suffering, but that wasn't the main suffering. The main suffering, the deep suffering that the eye can't really see is that inner suffering of soul and spirit in which He was punished by His Father. God punished by God. Jesus was stricken and smitten by God. Isaiah 53, 4, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Jesus was pierced with the sword of God's anger. Mark 14, 27, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd. And the sheep will be scattered. And he's quoting Zechariah 13.7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. God pierced His own Son with a sword. Jesus was crushed by God on the cross. Isaiah 53.10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. Jesus was cursed by God on the cross and made a curse. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus took that curse of hell that you and I deserve. He took that in our place as our substitute. 
In our place condemned He stood. Jesus was the propitiation of God's anger. That means He removed the anger. He, he absorbed the anger. He absorbed the hell that we, we deserve. He, he absorbed the eternity, the, the infinite wrath of God that we deserve in hell. Jesus took that upon His soul in six hours. And He can do that because He's the infinite God-man. And quench the fires of hell so that you and I will never face them. Never face them. If we had a Leslie organ, now would be a time for a praise break. <laughs> Never face them. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. First John 4.10, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus drank the cup that contained God's anger. Remember in Gethsemane, Jesus prayed not once, not twice, but three times. If there's any way, take this cup away. But not my will, your will be done. What is that cup? All over the Bible we see the cup is the wrath of God. The infinite wrath of God. And Jesus knew that on the cross He would drink that cup to the dregs. Jesus was forsaken by God on the cross. If you read any theologian that says He, was just, he just felt forsaken, that really burns me up. I probably won't read that guy again. He didn't just feel forsaken. He was forsaken. If He only felt forsaken, I can just feel saved. No, Jesus was forsaken. He meant what He said and He said what He meant. He was forsaken of God on that cross so that you and I will never be forsaken. Never be forsaken. Jesus was not spared anything of God's wrath on the cross. Romans 8.32 He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. And crucifixion also means God was angry with Jesus Christ His Son and His Anointed One. Psalm 89.38 But you have rejected, you have spurned, you have been very angry with your Anointed One. If God wasn't angry with His Son on the cross, then He'll be angry with me for all eternity. This is the heart of the Gospel. This is non-negotiable. Jesus bore the anger and curse and wrath of God when He was crucified so that you and I will never face that. We'll never face it. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. This is what is meant by He was crucified. This is what is meant by He was crucified. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. But that's not all. Sometimes when y'all share the gospel, you talk about the death, but you leave out the resurrection. Children, when you're sharing the gospel, don't leave out the resurrection. Sometimes I have to ask people after we ask them the gospel, did he stay dead? Oh, no, 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 no. You've got you to tell people the resurrection. That, that, I, I've written let, uh, uh, emails to that fellowship track league that has a lot of good tracks, but some of their tracks leave out the resurrection. I ain't given no track that leaves out the resurrection. That ain't the gospel. <laughs> Come on now. Look at Matthew 20, 19. Jesus would be raised on the third day. And He will be raised on the third day. Who raised Jesus from the dead? The Trinity. The Trinity did. The Trinity did. 
God the Father did. Galatians 1.1, God the Father who raised Him from the dead. Notice, why am I talking about this? Because it says He will be raised on the third day. He will be raised. Well, who raised Him? God the Father did. Galatians 1, God the Father who raised Him from the dead. God the Son did. John 2.19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus raised Himself up from the dead. Did y'all know that? (laughs) Jesus raised Himself up from the dead. He's that great. He's that glorious. God the Holy Spirit raised Him from the dead. Romans 8.11 If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Temple of God. You're the temple. You're Jerusalem. Amen? That's what the Bible says. Preaching to Jerusalem here. And God did. God raised Jesus from the dead. Acts 13.30 But God raised Him from the dead. The Trinity raised Jesus from the dead. And I have a little side note, a little side note, which some of you know about already, but I was, I was at Broad and Awnie this Thursday and I was talking to a, a brother. He was real, real, I shouldn't say brother, a friend. Uh, and and uh, he was very nice and we got to talking and he agreed on all these things. Uh, uh, Jesus is God. He loved my shirt and he believes Jesus is God and and he believes in Jesus saves. He believes in holiness and pursuing holiness. He believes in repentance from sins. He, he believes in certain uh, church things that we agree with. He, he believes that certain sins that are popular in the world are really sins and need to be repented of. But then he started talking about Geno Jennings. Geno Jennings has a big old church on Fifth Street. And I knew then, oh no, I'm not sure. If, is this guy, I, I try to... Fill them out a little bit. Is this guy a real like devoted apostle, uh, follower of Geno Jennings? Or is this just some guy that he's heard and thinks he's pretty cool but doesn't know what's really going on under the hood, so to speak? Well, he knew what was going on under the hood because when I started talking about God is one God in three persons. Oh, no, 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 no. God is not three personalities. No, no, no. No, no, there's only one God. Trinity is not in the Bible. Are you one of those Trinity believers? You're going to go to hell uh, and, and, and I actually felt loved by him because he kept telling me I was going to go to hell because I believe in the Trinity, but he, he, I felt like he loved me because he really believes that, and I think he's going to go to hell unless he repents. It's much more easier for me to talk to men like that than people who try to, oh, no, we're all the same. No, we're very different. And so I realized this guy is a follower of Geno Jennings, and uh, Geno Jennings denies the Trinity. He, he, he denies that God is triune. Now, you'll see language that God manifests Himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but that word manifest ought to, ought to uh, signal warning sign, warning sign, warning sign, keep out, keep out, keep out, walk away, walk away, walk away, manifest, 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 T.D. Jake's website, if you go to his church potter's house, God manifests Himself as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not the Trinity. They worship a different God. That is not the Christian God. You can't be saved by trusting and worshiping that God. It's a different Jesus and a different God. And one of the things he kept saying is, Trinity is not in the Bible. Trinity is not in the Bible. And I was thinking the day after, I need a good illustration of a place Jesus taught something that ain't in the Bible, so to speak. Jesus teaches a concept Uh, with a word that is not in the Bible. And you know what God brought to my mind? The word resurrection. The word resurrection. You remember when Jesus was talking with the Sadducees who deny the resurrection? 
Jesus took them to a verse in the Old Testament that does not contain the word resurrection and said, this is the resurrection. In other words, the word ain't got to be there. The concept's got to be there. The word does not have to be there. The concept's got to be there. And guess what? The word resurrection is not in the Hebrew uh, Old Testament either. Nowhere in the Hebrew Old Testament, if y'all know where it is, I asked two Bible scholars, Dr. Benjamin Shaw and Dr. Ian Duguid, and they confirmed this. I like to get back up from men who actually read Hebrew really well. But if y'all know one, you let me know. There's no Hebrew word in the Old Testament for resurrection, and yet Jesus taught the doctrine of the resurrection from the Old Testament. And so I'm going to go with Jesus, not Geno Is It's always good to go with Jesus. Matthew 22, 29 through 33, but Jesus said to them, answering them, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, you are wrong. <laughs> you are wrong. Should Jesus be more sensitive? Sometimes you just got to tell people, you wrong. That's loving. You are wrong, Jesus says, because you know neither the scriptures, you don't know your Bible. Jesus needs some sensitivity training. He needs some pastoral training to be a little more pastoral. No, sometimes you just need to tell people, you wrong, you don't know your Bible. You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Beloved, are you, are you, are you getting it here? He teaches the resurrection from a passage in the Old Testament that does not use the word resurrection. So when your friends come to you and say, well, Trinity's not in the Bible, you take them here and you show them Jesus and you teach them the doctrine of necessary consequence, good and necessary consequence in the Bible, that the concept's there. The Word doesn't need to be there. Exhibit 1, Jesus Christ, the God who made all words. That's a side note. But I want you to know that because this guy lives right down the street, pastors right down the street, and I want you to have good answers so that you'll remain steadfast, holding to Trinitarian theology, holding to the faith, holding the truth, and not make shipwreck of faith and die and go to hell. And don't be led astray by these false teachers. I'm going to send out more on that tomorrow if you're on the email list. If you're not, ask me and, and I'll, I'll, I'll send it out to you. But I want you to be really grounded on what the Trinity is and realize there's, there, there's people who would say Jesus is God and yet they miss the distinctions in the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why was Jesus raised from the dead? This text tells us that Jesus was raised from the dead. Why was Jesus raised from the dead? Jesus was raised on the third day to fulfill God's promises about Jesus in the Old Testament. He was raised on the third day to fulfill what Jesus said He would do. He was raised for our justification that we might be forgiven and counted righteous in Christ. He was raised so that our faith won't be futile and will die in our sins. He was raised so that we would be raised imperishable. He was raised so that He would be a life-giving Spirit. He was raised so that we would bear the likeness of the man from heaven. He was raised so that we, so that He would swallow up death in victory. He was raised so that He would be the first fruits. He was raised so that we would have new life full of love and holiness as those dead in sin and alive, dead to sin and alive to righteousness. 
He was raised to show it was impossible for death to hold Him. He was raised to give us repentance and forgiveness of sins. He was raised so that He would be declared the Son of God with power. He's always been the Son of God, but He was declared to be the Son of God in power when He was raised from the dead. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, He said. He was raised so that He would be the resurrection and the life. He was raised to have the powerful, so that we would have the powerful life of the Spirit of God dwelling in us. He was raised so that no one or no thing can ever condemn us. He was raised so we would be delivered from the wrath to come. He was raised so we would believe and be saved. He was raised so we would enjoy God's presence. He was raised so that we would be born again to a living hope in God. He was raised so at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He was raised to prove that He is the Messiah. He was raised to show that Jesus is God. He was raised to show God will judge the world through Jesus Christ. And He was raised so that we would seek the things above with Christ. And He would be all in all. These are all reasons that Jesus was raised from the dead. He conquered death. He rose up from the dead. How many of you are ever tempted to go after false religions? Let let me just help you out. They're all dead. Buddha's dead. Zen, Buddhist, Eastern religion, they all dead. Why would you want to go after that? Prophet Muhammad, false prophet Muhammad is dead. Not only did he marry a six-year-old girl and consummate the marriage when he was, when she was nine, when he was in his fifties, but he died. What can he do for you? Name your religious teacher prophet. Name the guru. They're all dead or will die. Jesus is the only one who conquered death. He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He, he's Alpha and Omega. He's beginning and he's first and last. He's the greatest. There's no one like him. Why would you go after all this stuff that leads to death? Come to Jesus. He, 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 and He's telling you what He's going to do. We'll get to that later. Why was Jesus raised on the third day? Even that is called in Scripture. Even that is prophesied in Scripture. Jason Derushi has a great article on, on the third day prophecies in the Old Testament. And I'm not going to go over all of it, but I'll just give you a little taste of it. It was on the third day of His journey talking about Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac, it was on the third day of his journey to sacrifice his son Isaac that Abraham promised his servants, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And we know, we know from the book of Hebrews that Abraham, he's going to raise him from the dead. And the Old Testament anticipates the third day resurrection of God's people following an exilic death. Hosea 6.2 After two days He will revive us. On the third day He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Beloved, Jesus Christ's resurrection on the third day fulfills Old Testament prophecy, not prediction. I know you can use that word. Finally, beloved, last point. Jesus knows all things. Jesus knows all things. This is the third or fourth declaration, depending on whether you count uh, twice in chapter 17, that Jesus tells of His death and resurrection in Matthew's Gospel. And Jesus here tells His disciples what's going to happen to Him in detail. Right? 
he, he, he tells them, who's going to kill me? How is it going to happen? Who's going to deliver who over to who? Who's first? Who's second? They're going to flog me. They're going to mock me. Jesus knows in detail. They're going to crucify me and I'm going to get up. He tells them everything in detail. Jesus knows. Jesus knows all things. And he, he, he knew because he knows his Old Testament and he knows because he knows everything. He not only knows all happenings, He knows all possibilities of all possible happenings. Matthew eleven twenty three. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Jesus knows what would happen if He did His mighty works in Sodom. He not only knows everything, He knows all possibilities of everything. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge belong to Jesus Christ. Colossians 2, 3. In Christ Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the fullness of God is His. Colossians 2.9 For in Jesus Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All that is in God is in Jesus. And all that is in God is in the Father. And all that is in God is in the Spirit. And they're distinct persons. <laughs> Jesus knows the thoughts of man. Matthew 9.4 But Jesus knowing their thoughts said why do you think evil of in your hearts? Jesus knows our thoughts. Jesus knew where a cult was tied up for His own use when He rode into Jerusalem as the great King. Jesus knew that a shekel would be found in the mouth of the first fish that Peter caught. Jesus knew who would believe in Him and who would betray Him. John 6, 64, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. Beloved, only God can do this. Jesus is God. He is worthy of your total, absolute, and complete trust. He knows all about your pains. He knows all about your fears. He knows all about your weaknesses and all about your hopes and dreams. He knows all about your trials. All about your losses. All about your hardships. All about your failures. All about your sins. All about your health. And He not only knows about it. He cares and promises to work everything out for your everlasting good. And He shows you that He'll do that because of what He did on that weekend in Jerusalem. D.A. Carson writes, the entire Bible pivots on one weekend in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. Beloved, what is contained in these verses is to be our boast. It's to be our only boast. Boast only in the cross, the Bible says. This is to be of what is first importance to us. This is to be what we're to know better and more and cherish more than anything else. And beloved, I, I want to bring you back to one final application. It is that this, this, this what Jesus tells us He's going to do here, this is the definitive final declaration of God that He loves you. This is. Not, not what you're suffering. Not whether you found a parking space close to the door this morning. Not, not the pains. Not the hardships. Not, 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 not the losses in your life. Th those are circumstances that you should not let hinder your trust and belief that God loves you. Because God has definitively shown you that He loves you in what He's doing here in His Son, Jesus Christ. 
We struggle to believe this. We really do. We have to fight to believe this. And I love this illustration told by Brian Chappell that illustrates this so clearly. Brian Chappell writes, As I was pastoring the rural rural church attended by farmers and coal miners, people accustomed to hard lives, I heard a story that taught me more about the nature and foundation of true faith than I had gained in much of my seminary education. The story tells of a miner who, though a stalwart believer, was injured at a young age. He became an invalid. He was, he was crippled. He was handicapped. Over the years, he watched through a window near his bed as life passed him by. He watched fellow workers marry, raise families, and have grandchildren. He watched the company he'd served thrive without attempting to make adequate provision for his loss. He watched as his body withered, his house crumbled, and hope for better things in his life died. Then, then one day, when he, the bedridden miner was quite old, a younger man came to visit him. I hear that you believe in God and claim that He loves you, said the young man. How can you believe such things after all that has happened to you? The old man hesitated and then smiled. He said, yes, there are days of doubt. Sometimes Satan comes calling on me in this fallen down old house of mine. He sits right there by my bed where you are sitting now. He points out my window to the men I once worked with whose bodies are still strong. And Satan asks, does Jesus love you? Then Satan makes me look at my tattered room as he points to the fine homes of my friends and asks again, does Jesus love you? Finally, Satan points to the grandchild of a friend of mine, a man who has everything I do not. And Satan waits for the tear in my eye before he whispers in my ear, does Jesus really love you? Startled by the candor of the old man's responses, the younger man asked, and what do you say when Satan speaks to you that way? The old miner said, I take Satan by the hand and I lead him to a hill far away called Calvary. And there I point to the nail-pierced hands the thorn-torn brow and the spear pierced side. And then I say to Satan, doesn't Jesus love me? Romans 5 But God demonstrates His own love for me in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Beloved, God loves you. And don't let anything in your life lead you to think anything otherwise. I mean, Romans 8 comes to mind. Neither life nor death, principalities, powers, death, things present, things to come. Anything, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus died for me and He rose for me. And He's coming back for me. 
Beloved, Jesus focuses His disciples' hearts and minds on the first and primary reality that will make all of the amazing grace we receive possible, which is the deliverance, sufferings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. Jesus was accused, used, bruised, and spitefully abused, then rose enthused, so the sting of death would be diffused, and we would never be refused. It's perfect love who leads the way toward death and pain and friends betray. The Father's wrath, His life would slay. But love goes forth. He will not sway. Like a rock on strong display, His love for you won't turn away. To pay sin's debt, the price He'll pay and rise again without decay. So you can then forever say, My Christ is all. Him I'll obey. His wondrous cross will be my stay. A love past knowing I'll survey. All because He led the way. Then died and rose that great third day. In Christ, you do not have to fear. In all your trials, He will be near. Even if you face the spear or lose that one you hold most dear, He'll be with you to dry the tear. For He will always love sincere. And He's the one who is most dear. So rise and praise and sing and cheer for Him who died your sins to clear. He took upon Himself the sneer and had His side pierced with a spear. They spit on Him and beat severe. But He would live, come from the rear. Up from the grave He did appear. He reigns o'er all in every sphere. He knows all things before they are. He knew from justice they'd stray far. He knew His body they would jar, and on His back they'd whip and mar. The crown of thorns His head would scar. They raised Him up on a crossbar. He died and rose the morning star and lives forever with the scar to love and change the way you are. Jesus was made sin in our place. Our wickedness and sin so base. He did in love it all embrace and in return He gives us grace. For all our sins He did erase and take upon His life disgrace so we could be a holy race and after God we wholly chase. We long to see His holy face who died and rose to give us grace. When He died upon that tree the greatest love of all we see. It passes knowledge vast and free It's deeper than the deepest sea. And from its grip, you cannot flee. For holy living, it's the key to come to God, the one in three. Turn from your sin, this is His plea, and trust the Son who died for thee. Into His loving arms you'll flee, and there forever happy be. Christ Jesus took all condemnation. He's hope, He's joy, the incarnation. Went up to Jerusalem on station the heart of the earth and all of creation, to ransom a people from every nation, deliver, delivered by men who deserve damnation, delivered by God our propitiation, mocked and flogged in humiliation, crucified and died to bring salvation and rose up alive for our justification. This is the center, our preoccupation, the first of importance, our firm foundation, the deepest cause of all celebration, the end of our joy quest consummation. For Christ is all our exhilaration.
Father, we pray that you would help us to believe what we read about our Jesus. We pray that you would help us take that resolve of Jonathan Edwards to examine that in our lives and minds which most causes us to doubt the love of God and direct all of our forces against it. Lord, we know that Satan comes to us just like that old coal miner and throws all kinds of things in our face. He's the accuser of the brethren. The accuser of the brethren to make us doubt what we most need to make progress in holiness, to fight sin. That Satan would ask questions that cause us to doubt the love of God, to doubt Your love for us. And we pray, Lord God, You would grant us the shield of faith to extinguish all the fiery darts of the devil. That we would, by the power of the Spirit, be able to direct all our forces against anything that causes us to doubt Your love. Lord, that we would not base our thinking and feeling and delighting in Your love on our circumstances, the good things or bad things or hard things that happen in our lives. But Lord, we would look to the cross that we would take Satan by the hand and take him up to that hill called Calvary. And show Him how much Jesus loves us. And so Lord, help us stand at the foot of the cross. Help us to live in the dust at the foot of the cross. Help us to boast only in the cross. Help us to know the height and width and length and depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and be filled with all of Your fullness, O God. We want more God. And we know that will come through the cross. And so God, give us a clear vision of the cross. Give us a clear vision of Christ and His death and resurrection. Help us to rest in His knowledge, His his omniscient knowledge. Help us to know Your love. Help us to be amazed at grace and move us, Lord. Move us to live for You. Help us to hate sin more. Help us to be so excited about what Christ has done for us on the cross that we have got to tell other people about this great Savior. Lord, we pray You would save Geno Jennings. We pray that You would save this friend I talked to. We pray You would save false teachers, save those who deny the Trinity. Lord, You've done that before. You, 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 you've brought people out of darkness like that into Your marvelous light. Do it again, Lord. You saved us. You can save anybody. So save these, these false teachers. Bring revival. 